a major, major episode. The polyvagal theory meets the DSM's post-traumatic stress disorder. What's the underlying polyvagal connection? My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow trauma nerd, helping you understand and apply the science of connection to daily life. Welcome to episode 47 of the Polyvagal Podcast. It's just me again. Uh, no Mercedes this episode. She is feeling a bit under the weather. She is missed. So you're stuck with me. If you're one of the super fans, stick around after the main topic. I got three quick announcements about some new resources. I have a selfish request from the podcast and a message from a super fan. But before I go further, I really want to make sure you put yourself first. This should be a pretty safe episode overall. But we are talking about trauma. Uh, you know, And you know we keep every episode as safe as we can. Just by the nature of the stuff, you, you may experience some of your own stuff come up. We are talking about PTSD in particular. I think it's safe, but, you know, obviously, put yourself first. Please take a break if you need to. And a quick disclaimer here. This information is not meant to diagnose. If you feel like you may be experiencing symptoms of PTSD, consult with a mental health or medical professional. We are speaking in generalities. Your specific situation, diagnosis, treatment, and medication are entirely between you and your provider. All right, PTSD and the polyvagal theory first. Remember how we define trauma as being in a stuck defensive state. We don't define trauma as the event. We define trauma in the polyvagal theory as being in a more dysregulated autonomic nervous system state. That means that we have lost access to our safe and social state. That means that we are stuck in a defensive state, flight, fight, or a shutdown or like a freeze kind of state. And I think when it comes to PTSD in particular, it's probably more of the freeze, the shutdown and sympathetic energy combination, the shutdown or the the sympathetic flight fight energy being stuck within someone and easily triggered. There is a lot when it comes to PTSD in the DSM. Here is the first criteria. Exposure to actual or threatened death serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. And I'll read the first three, directly experiencing the traumatic events, witnessing in person the event as it occurred to others, and three, learning that the traumatic events occurred to a close family member or close friend. In cases of actual or threatened death of a family member or friend, the events must have been violent or accidental. Part A1 through A3, those three pieces I just read, so far is about the acute traumatic event. Now, this this is significant because so far with PTSD, the diagnosis in the DSM, they are relating it to an event. They are relating it to the past and how it affects us in the present. And that's different than a lot of the other diagnoses. There are two paths when it comes to uh, trauma, and this is one of those two paths. We'll we'll discuss the second path to trauma coming up, but this is the first one. The first one is surviving an acute event, like a one-time, potentially a one-time thing, like a car crash, war, uh, sexual abuse. It's it's something, potentially a one-time event that somebody survived that leaves them in a stuck defensive state. 
So, so far, A1 through A3 is about the acute, traumatic, or more potentially to be traumatic event that involves death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Going on, A4 says, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of the traumatic events, such as first responders collecting human remains, police officers repeatedly exposed to details of child abuse. Part four here, part A4, still has that flavor of the acute traumatic incident, but this one specifically details how it's repeated or extreme exposure to the aversive details of the traumatic events. So, so far in parts A1 through A4, it has covered the source of the PTSD. And like I said before, this is different than most diagnoses since they, are, since they cover symptoms and not sources of why. Like we talked about bipolar last time, bipolar disorder, and nothing in bipolar disorder has anything to do with why someone may be exhibiting those symptoms or behaviors. It's, it's more focused on the symptoms or the behaviors. In PTSD, there's a recognition that this is directly connected to a past event. All right, part B, presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms associated with the traumatic events, beginning after the traumatic events occurred. So B1, recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories of the traumatic events. It's Obviously, it's not just the memory. This, this uh, lists the memory, but it's not just remembering when someone is remembering the trauma, the traumatic event they survived, it's it's a reliving. It's a reliving of the event, not just a memory in the brain that they're picturing, but they get sucked back into that uh, that time. They they get sucked into the past, or the past gets brought forward into their present. So it's not just the memory, and I think in this criteria. It does say recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive, distressing memory. So it's that distressing piece of it that's really significant. That it's not just thinking about it and recalling it, but that we are feeling distress, what they call distress, of the memory. And I think in particular, what might be happening during these distressing memories of the traumatic events is that it's a reliving of the polyvagal state during the event. So... If you had to go into a freeze or panic sort of energy during the event, that's probably what's going to come up for you. That's probably what's going to be triggered for you when these distressing memories occur. Or it could also be the flight fight energy as well. Like I said before, when we go into that freeze state where it's, where it's shut down plus sympathetic, that sympathetic flight fight energy gets stuck within us. It gets trapped because we're immobilized while supercharged. It's like hitting the brake and the gas at the same time. So we're super revved up, but immobilized in some way. So that energy gets stuck within us. When we're triggered, then that energy is like, it's ready to go. It's just there. And it's, you know, it's still in our muscles and it's ready to discharge. Uh, unfortunately, human beings have lost, well, we haven't lost it, but we're not super great about just allowing that process to happen. Part B2, it says recurrent distressing dreams in which the content 
and or uh, affect of the dream are related to the traumatic events. And I think this is kind of what what um, I was just talking about, where the affect of the dream, the feelings of the dream are related to the traumatic events. Like that energy is still stuck within you. And we just talked about it last week. We did an episode on dreams and how sleep may be the body's opportunity or the autonomic nervous system's opportunity to regulate up the polyvagal ladder. And, but, but when it does that, that it has to go through the stages of the ladder and that these memories and dreams, the dreams match the polyvagal state. The energy matches the polyvagal state in the dream. And you're going to dream about the events that match that, that state, those, that energy as well. So I highly recommend listening to last week's episode and uh, you'll hear myself and Mercedes sort of process sleeping and dreaming uh, in comparison to the polyvagal theory. But basically, you know, in dreams, like the past comes up because now there's no, there's nothing to stop or minimize or subdue the autonomic nervous system from, you know, upregulating from climbing the ladder. So all that energy comes up and the, you know, story falls state. So the dreams match the state. That's my speculation. You know, that, that, those are my thoughts. I haven't read that anywhere else. That just kind of seems to make sense to me. Part B3, dissociative reactions, for example, flashbacks, in which the individual feels or acts as if the traumatic events were recurring. And this is you know, basically what we've talked about already, that there's a severe triggering to the past event or the past event to the present. I talked or I asked about, I asked my audience on Instagram, what, how would you describe being triggered? And a big theme that came up was the past coming to the present or myself in the present moment being taken to the past and sort of reliving a past moment. And remember, story follows state. So when that energy gets triggered, the memories are going to get triggered along with it. So that's flashbacks. And the individual, the the trauma survivor is going to feel as if the traumatic events were currently happening because all the energy is back and the memories, the flashbacks of, of them are as well. In these dissociative reactions or flashbacks, there is a loss of executive functioning and in being in the present moment. So the ability to think clearly, to use grounding skills, to, to socially engage with people, um, to weigh, you know, uh, to do a pros and cons of what, how to handle the situation that's severely compromised. There, it's too much sympathetic energy kicking on. And when we go into those flight fight places, our critical thinking ability gets compromised. That skill kind of goes away. We lose that skill in these states because now our body is primed for running away or fighting. So that, that's part of what happens when we drop down the ladder into a defensive state. All right, part B4. Intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of the traumatic events. This is, um, you know, being triggered, right? This is what it, this is what they're describing is just what we call being triggered. What triggers us is often unpredictable, though we we can never know what what the um, aspect of the traumatic event was that really got imprinted on someone. I think it's sort of a good word for it. But it could be a lot of things, very small details. 
It could be textures. It could be smells. It could be sights. The idea here is that the brain is, I believe, is focusing on what might help us to survive the next time or it's looking for a pattern. It's basically attaching its state to a sensory experience so that next time that sensory experience is experienced, that the body can run away or fight or do whatever it has to do to survive. So we become really imprinted by, by the details of the events. Obviously and sadly, what happens is when these small details of the trauma uh, pop up in day-to-day life, that the brain now sees this as, or the body now sees this as, a threat. And it could be a smell, a certain smell. It could be a certain texture. And when these things are in our lives or they come across our day, it could easily trigger that reaction, that energy, that stuck energy to come right back. And part B5, the last part, is marked physiological reactions to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of the traumatic events. What this is describing in polyvagal terms are autonomic shifts in breathing, in focus, in perspiration, facial muscles, usage, voice, the ability to use a full range of voice. All of this stuff, when we shift down the ladder, when our polyvagal state shifts from like safety down to flight, flight, fight, we, all this stuff changes. All this autonomic stuff changes. We lose access to using a full range of voice or our facial muscles. This, this connects back to the idea of being triggered when the trauma survivor is triggered. They drop down their polyvagal ladder out of their safe and social state. There are marked physiological reactions. These are autonomic shifts. All right, C. Persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events beginning after the traumatic events occurred as evidenced by one or more of the following. C1, avoidance of or efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about or closely associated with the traumatic events. C2, avoidance of or efforts to avoid external reminders like people, places, conversations, activities, objects, situations that arouse distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about or closely associated with the traumatic events. And this is where the behavioral adaptation piece of the polyvagal theory comes in. That we do things, we we adapt and change our behavior in order to self-regulate. Because if we did not, if the trauma survivor did not avoid stimuli associated with the traumatic events, they would drop down into their flight, fight, their sympathetic or freeze energy. So uh, adapting their behavior to avoid these things, uh, that's, that's a way of self-regulating. It's a way of making sure that they stay more in their ventral vagal social engagement system. I think this could be literally like taking a new route to avoid or, or, or you know, not going to a family party to avoid a certain someone. But it could also be substance use to avoid uh, stimuli associated with traumatic events or to numb it. Behavioral adaptations could be ticks, uh, ticks that the, the person has adapted or um, compulsions. It could be self-harm. It could be a lot of different things in an attempt to self-regulate. 
One of the key things here with the C category, the persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events, is that it's avoidance of or efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings. So it's not just avoidance of the person or the place, but also the memories, the thoughts, and the feelings. And that's where, the, again, that's where the behavioral adaptation really comes into play is what can I do to self-regulate or give myself some relief from the pain of these memories, of these thoughts and feelings of the traumatic events. D, negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with the traumatic events beginning or worsening after the traumatic events occurred as evidenced by two or more of the following. D, one, inability to remember an important aspect of the traumatic events, typically due to dissociative amnesia and not to other factors such as head injury, alcohol, or drugs. We already said before that we are hyper-focused on one aspect of the event. Trauma survivors don't always remember every single detail of the trauma. And I I did a couple rounds of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy a few years ago. But something that was, you know, really obviously clear during the TFCBT was the first time they told the story was a lot different than, let's say, the last time they told the story. By the last time they told the story, more and more and more details came out um, as they were able to process it or as they were able to reflect back and fill in a lot of blanks and really with like a lot, a lot of guided questions of what happened between this and this that they were able to fill in the blanks. But simply thinking back, there, there's a big gap. There's typically a big gap there of, of what happened or there can be. And we said before that they are hyper-focused on one aspect of the event, one little detail it could be. So all the other stuff that's happening could easily get lost because the focus is typically or can be on one aspect of the event. And people flat out dissociate during traumatic events as well. And dissociation, according to polyvagal theory, is actually an adaptive aid to survival. Because if you dissociate from the moment enough after the event, after you survive the event, and you don't have to remember it, you may be able to escape to safety. And then if you combine this with the fact that you actually can go numb during a flight fight or even a shutdown uh, response, being numb and not remembering what just happened is going to greatly, or I think probably significantly increase your potential to survive uh, a predator and then uh, emerge from that and get to safety. D2 says persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about oneself, others, or the world. For example, I am bad, no one can be trusted, the world is completely dangerous, and my whole nervous system is permanently ruined. Story follows state. We know that. Deb Dana says story follows state. So these negative, persistent, or exaggerated beliefs about the self or others are really just a reflection of the survivor's own autonomic state. These persistent, exaggerated, negative beliefs are not necessarily accurate. These are, these can be a reflection of their autonomic state, of a survivor's autonomic state, and may not be a reflection of the real world. Saying I am bad, that that's not necessarily true. It's probably not true. No one can be trusted. I can see why someone would feel that way, but no one, that's probably not necessarily true about absolutely everyone, right? The world is completely dangerous. Not necessarily true. There's, of course, plenty of danger in the world, but completely dangerous uh, is not necessarily a reflection of reality. 
but it is a reflection of the autonomic state that the survivor might be in. When we exist in a more flight-fight place, the world is perceived as way more dangerous than it might be. And even things that are not dangerous can be perceived as dangerous because we filter the world through our autonomic state. And if we're in a shutdown place, the story, the you know, the stories of the world are a lot more, I guess, pessimistic or um, hopeless or defeated. It just, it matches the state. Part D3, persistent, distorted cognitions about the cause or consequences of the traumatic events that lead the individual to blame himself or herself or others. So again, story follows state. The survivor is attempting to make sense of the situation. So these narratives or these stories or these explanations pop into our head in an attempt to explain the situation, in an attempt to possibly increase the chances of survival the next time. But sadly, these, these thoughts that pop into our head um, are often judgments or evaluations and kind of keep us stuck in the state. For example, the survivor blaming themselves and saying, I shouldn't have done this or that. They're placing the blame on themselves in an attempt to at least have an explanation of why this happened. If I can at least have an explanation, maybe it won't feel as overwhelming. But sadly, the explanation of I shouldn't have done this or that may not be a helpful one. It actually may be even more reinforcing of the defensive state. And again, remember, story follows state. So I shouldn't have done this or that is probably reflective of their autonomic state. Part D4, persistent negative emotional state. This is, you know, this is symptoms of the polyvagal state. Now in D4, what they're saying is fear, horror, anger, guilt, shame. But these feelings or these emotions stem from the polyvagal state. Guilt, shame, these are, I think, shut down emotions. Fear, horror, anger. Fear is kind of like an emotion on top of the polyvagal state. Fear kind of happens when we are not able to execute on the state shift. So when we feel the need to run, but are not able to execute on that impulse, that's when fear comes into play. So fear is kind of like, in my mind, is kind of on top of the polyvagal state, whereas something like anger is really the emotional experience of being in like a fight place, whereas anxiety would be the experience of being in a flight place. Point here is that the feelings stem from the state, and these feelings are reinforced by the thoughts and the consequences of the behaviors that are acted on from the feelings, so... If you're feeling or if you're experiencing the emotion of anger, which comes from a fight place, fight energy, and then you act on that and fight someone, you're going to have a consequence for that. And that consequence might upset you all over again or keep you stuck in that fight place. So it's reinforcing. Part D5, markedly diminished interest or participation in significant activities. This this might be due to shutdown. I think that, well, it could be, it could also be if you're more of a flight fight place, your ability to listen to your impulses, to, to do those hobbies that bring you joy and passion might be compromised, but I, I do definitely think that being in a shutdown place significantly decreases your interest or, or participation 
and significant activities. Like it's just like the motivation is gone. The, the energy for life to accomplish things, uh, to challenge yourself is gone. But it could also be, this might be due to avoiding triggers, like, you know, avoiding a family member. So going to a funeral might be a uh, significant activity, but if there's someone there you want to avoid, then that could easily be like a flight energy. Like I want to get away from this certain person and listening to that flight energy might cause someone to, uh, to just flat out avoid it. D6, feelings of detachment or estrangement from others. When people are in a very shut down dorsal vagal place, they isolate. I think there's like a biological drive to hide and then emerge into safety. We, we talked about in the podcast in the past that you kind of have to complete the autonomic states. You have to sort of complete the impulse. And I think that when you're in a shutdown place, the impulse is to hide or is to curl up, in, you know, in like a fetal position or just to kind of fold inward and, and kind of hide. So part of that, I think, is to isolate. I'm not necessarily recommending that people who are in a depressed, shutdown place go isolate. I'm not saying do that. But if you can mindfully listen to the impulses of your body, that's that's different. And those impulses might be to go into a dark room and meditate on that and really be in that state and then allow that sympathetic energy to return. That's a lot different than simply isolating and watching TV all day. Part D7 persistent inability to experience positive emotions such as the inability to experience happiness, satisfaction, or loving feelings. Again, this is due to a stuck state. Those those positive emotions, those stem from being in a social engagement, safe and social, ventral vagal state. The, the, those things, satisfaction, love, happiness, those don't really happen when you're in a flight fight in a, in a majority flight fight place or in a majority shutdown place. Someone who's in more of a flight fight place, of course, can feel love. But while that system is activated and that's the dominant system, you're not going to be probably feeling a whole lot of love or satisfaction or happiness or joy. Okay, so that, that was part D. Now part E, we also have F, G, and H, which are quicker. But E is the, uh, the last one that kind of has a good chunk to it. So part E says, marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic events beginning or worsening after the traumatic events has occurred, as evidenced by two or more of the following. E1, irritable behavior and angry outbursts with little or no provocation, typically expressed as verbal or physical aggression toward people or objects. E2, reckless or self-destructive behavior. E3, hypervigilance. E4, exaggerated startle response, E5, problems with concentration, and E6, sleep disturbance, such as difficulty falling or staying asleep or restless sleep. So that was a lot. But again, the E category, the E section is marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic event, as evidenced by those six things. These six things are all stemming from, in my opinion, a sympathetic state. Irritable behavior, angry outburst, that's that's from that fight sympathetic state. Reckless or self-destructive behavior, I'm going to hold off on that actually for a second. Hypervigilance is definitely from that flight energy that's stuck within someone. An exaggerated starter response, problems with concentration. If you're more sympathetically active, you're going to have a hard time concentrating. Sleep disturbance, same thing. If you're, if you're in more of a flight fight place, you're not going to be able to lay down comfortably breathe easily and fall asleep. 
But I, I want to let's add a new wrinkle here. I think a few of these might be more in relation to the mixed freeze state, which is the sympathetic flight fight energy plus the shutdown, immobilization, lack of energy, really the break. So it's like the break and the gas at the same time, but it gets stuck inside of you. So in particular, it says the large or the angry outbursts with little or no provocation, those when that freeze energy is inside and it has more of that rageful, angry uh, tint to it, it doesn't take a whole lot. That can be triggered very easily and it comes out as this rage because the individual has so much sympathetic anger stuck energy that's frozen inside of them that when it's triggered, it's, it's a rage. It's this completely chaotic blackout kind of anger. That's more of a freeze energy in my opinion though. Same thing with the exact says exaggerated startle response. If someone has that freeze energy stuck inside of them, when they're triggered, it's, it's this exaggerated response. It's it's very, um, very it's a lot more chaotic and less controlled. And same also with hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is not just anxiety, but it, I think it has this intense like freeze kind of quality to it. This intense like huge sympathetic, um, panicky kind of feel to it. And that panic is really the combination of flight plus shutdown but and fear. So I think those, in particular, the large angry outbursts, exaggerated responses, and hypervigilance, all those involve, I think in particular, fear. And the fear is there because they were not, allowed, they were not able to complete the defensive response of flight or fight. Part F, the duration of the disturbance which is criteria B, C, D, and E is more than one month. So the duration of the intrusions, the persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the event, the duration of the negative alterations in cognitions or mood, market alterations in arousal and reactivity, the duration of the disturbance is more than one month of those, of those things, of those criteria. Criteria G is the disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Yeah, obviously, right? When this stuck energy is inside of you, or when it's it's uh, if you're stuck in more of a defensive place, it's it's going to cause problems for daily living. It's going to be a lot harder to function in school. It's going to be a lot harder potentially to uh, make and sustain friendships or relationships. It can be difficult when it comes to work as well in many different areas. So yeah, it's going to cause clinically significant distress or impairment. And then criteria H is the disturbance is not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance. So we don't need to take a substance to have these effects like they just exist on their own without any sort of medications or alcohols or anything. Part of PTSD is to specify whether it's with dissociative symptoms and the individual's symptoms meet the criteria for PTSD, and in addition, in response to the stressor, the individual experiences persistent or recurrent symptoms of either of the following. Depersonalization, which is feeling detached from your own body, and derealization, which is your surroundings don't feel real. But I'm going to save this for, for another time. I've been doing a lot of research into dissociation. It's a huge one. It's a big, big, big topic. Um, I don't have a a time or a day of when I'll be addressing that. I don't have a certain episode, I mean, but it's something I would like to address. Um, I think there's a lot of useful information, but I want to make sure I'm handling it really carefully. It's it's a big one. So I guess as like a last thought, I really think the PTSD diagnosis has more of the flavor 
of the freeze energy where the high sympathetic charge is stuck in the body due to being immobilized while in a highly sympathetic and fearful place. All right, so we've got three announcements real quick here. Number one is I created two new PDFs. The first one is the Polyvagal Fundamentals. And the second one is Co-Regulation Quick Guide. And both of these are in my file share link in description, but it's justinlmft.com slash file share, one word file share. I think these are great for um, for workplaces or even you know therapists in providing uh, resources to the clients. All right, second announcement is the Therapeer content event number one is out. It's been out for a couple of weeks. Pretty good reaction to it. Some people are, actually one person in particular, she saw like a, a huge increase in the amount of people going to her blog. She said, um, I almost didn't complete, I think she said, I almost didn't complete the whole thing, but I figured 30 people will see it, so why not? I'll just do it. And I think she, she said she had over a thousand people that came to her blog. So she got all this new attention and actually got more views than I did on my own, so I'm a little jealous. But um, yeah, the therapy content event number one was out. It, it is out. And I think uh, hopefully everyone had a similar experience and had some new interests go their way. And the last one, I am now open for business as far as providing individual online psychotherapy. And it's only for people in California just due to laws and regulations. Um, it's a very, very small client list, maybe two. And I think I have one spot open. Um, it's, I'm only going to be doing Wednesday nights, nine o'clock and 10 o'clock PM Pacific time. And it's a weird time. I know if that fits the bill for you, hit me up. <laughs> That's my therapy sales pitch. Hit me up. Justin at gmail.com. Go ahead and email me if you're, if you're interested or go to my, my website and under services is, is the therapy. And you can read a lot more about, about what I do and uh, see if it's a good fit for you or not. I'm going to make one selfish request, and that is to screenshot this and share it. So many people are doing this, and I'm, I I love it. Thank you so much. Um, but this is, it's so helpful. It is super helpful for getting the polyvagal message out there, so please keep doing that. And then we got one message from a super fan. This is from Daniela. Hopefully I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly, Daniela. Hi, I'm writing to say that the episode on bipolar from polyvagal theory perspective was really eye-opening. One thing got me thinking. Apart from the fact that I could find myself in most of the descriptions of manic phase, I was really struck by the fact that when you are in shutdown, your intellectual potential is less than optimal. And I'm going to pause this and say, so was I. Mercedes had that great insight. And I don't think I had ever realized that, but the further you drop down the ladder, your cognitive functioning, like your intellectual potential is seriously compromised. I don't think I'd ever really put that together. Um, So thank you, Mercedes. And then she continues, I remember my son who struggles with reading and writing. Since we started work, my husband and me got more regulation and dedicated some time to connect with him. He's improved so much. That's huge. I love it. Just wanted to share this realization and small success with you in appreciation of your work, Daniela. That, yeah, man, like just having that time for our kids is absolutely huge. I found when I did family therapy, if I could get the parents to spend more time with them or express their love in a way that kid gets, things got better. And I'm not saying every single time, but I was surprised that with just those simple, simple pieces of co-regulation, if I could get parents to do that, and usually they were willing to do something different. So if I could get them to do that, 
the kid as the client, like the kid showed some significant changes uh, pretty much off the bat. It, it was, um, if I could get that going, that was huge. So super happy for you, Danielle. Thank you for, for reaching out. And for you, dear listener, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you've learned some new ways to connect with others or even with yourself. Bye.